instead of getting together and playing cards, we get together and we lift heavy weights. It's just been a great community to be in. Welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, and today I have a guest who is a self-described work-life balance person <laughs> and who strives to emphasize the importance of these concepts to residents, medical students, and pre-med students as an associate professor of pathology and anatomical sciences at the University of Missouri, Dr. Shalane Frazier. Welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. Sure. It's an honor and pleasure. Dr. Frazier, who I've come to know as Shelly, let's talk about your personal and career path, which may have been different than you expected. When you decided to become a doctor, would you have anticipated becoming a world champion athlete? Uh, no, no, I would not have. I have been an athlete my entire life, but no, I didn't think I would have done the things I've done. Can you tell us about your decision to become a doctor and how you imagined life as a doctor would be? Yeah, so it's kind of an, I think, funny story. So my dad was a barber and he had a client that was a pathologist, which is, I'm a pathologist. And he would talk to him and find, you know, what barbers do. They're kind of therapists also, right? And so as he got to know him, he just learned like what the pathologist's life was about, kind of. And he said, you need to be a pathologist. He said, that's the best money for the nicest life. So that was actually in junior high, I wanted to be a pathologist. So what happened after that was, I'm sure our audience is probably not old enough to remember the old forensics TV show, Quincy from like the 70s. Oh, yeah. It's sort of the NCIS of that time period. Absolutely. So I watched that and I saw that Quincy had an MD after his name. And I was like, oh, I have to go to medical school to be a pathologist. Oh, okay. Well, that's going to be a long road. But anyway, I persevered. And, and just having that goal in mind, it just made me pursue opportunities into pathology. You know, of course, I was drawn in by the forensics and all the drama of that, which is not as dramatic as people probably think it is as it's displayed on the TV show. But as I took opportunities to sort of shadow a pathologist and stuff, I learned like what pathology was and the, how broad of a discipline it is. And I actually decided I really didn't want to do forensic pathology at all. So I ended up just being a surgical pathologist. I am board certified in anatomic and clinical pathology, but my career path has always been, as faculty has always been predominantly an anatomic pathologist in surgical pathology. So that's kind of how I got here. And my dad was right. It is a really good job in healthcare. It's a good job for work-life balance. That's amazing how something like that can have <laughs> such a huge impact on someone's life. How has it been different than you expected? And how have you been able to pivot to accommodate the unexpected? Well, one thing is Quincy was an MD, but I actually ended up going to an osteopathic medical school, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, mm -hmm. where I got a fantastic education. I can't say enough about that school. 
And so I had a little bit different medical school experience than what most people know about MDs or allopathic school. So that was a little bit different. So I have a few more tools in my tool bag, although I don't use them very often. Since you bring that up, I'm curious for your quick overview of what the difference is between training of an MD and a DO for so, those who might be listening. Who might yeah, osteopathic physicians or DOs, basically the way I describe it to my colleagues is we go to medical school, but we go a lot longer than you do. <laughs> That's what I say. We don't get summers off because basically it's the whole MD curriculum, but we also have a manual medicine component. So we learn how to do physical treatments, just hands-on type stuff for musculoskeletal issues and things like that. So we have like four semesters of that in our first two years. So we just have a manual medicine component. Typically we merge DOs and MDs in residency. Correct. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic for my first year of residency, and then here goes the work-life balance where it started. So my dad was sick, and I felt like I needed to get back closer to home. So I transferred to MU for my second year, and that's where I finished out residency. So here I am. University of Missouri. Yes, University (laughs) of Missouri. So that worked out long-term for the University of Missouri (laughs) in their favor. Can you give me an overview then of your pursuits outside of medicine and then also of your career track, just to give us an overview of what you've done? So outside of medicine, I guess I'll talk about the sports part. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in hearing. Okay. So I've always been an athlete. I've been on some kind of team since I was in first grade and through residency, I got a little off track. I wasn't as consistent with working out, but you know, that happens during residency sometimes. Through medical school, I actually got, well, so I actually got interested in running a little bit in undergrad after I had a shoulder reconstruction and I couldn't play softball anymore. So I played for Truman State University for a year. But then when I couldn't really throw anymore, I found other things to do. And one of them was running. And when I got to medical school, I started running a lot, but also lifting weights. I've always kind of done that a little bit too, but just to augment running, not to like lift weights for the sake of lifting weights. It was more just part of the package of being fit. And I also got introduced to triathlons in medical school. So I did a handful of those and then residency where I said, eh, I was kind of on off on again, off again with running and lifting and stuff like that. But at one point in time, not too long after I started being an attending physician. I just got back into the swing of things and I actually started doing P90X. I don't know if anybody knows what that is. That's just like something you can do in your house and it's mostly body weight stuff. It really is good for what it is. I mean, it's a great way to get fit in your home. Anyway, that just gave me the fire again to start getting in shape and doing some of the other things I used to do. So I mostly concentrated on running for quite a while and ran a lot of 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, eventually three marathons and an ultra marathon. Okay, well, I want to hear about the weightlifting as well, because that really is where you have become a world champion and you've managed to hold records and win world championships in the U.S. and in Europe. 
as well as do quite a bit of work for the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Federation. So how did you go from doing aerobics at home to becoming a world champion powerlifter? So at one point, after I'd done P90X and I started getting involved in running, I actually had a resident who was into triathlons and she said, you need to do a triathlon because she was actually coaching a team in training. That's like a charity thing for Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And part of that was, she said, you need to go get your VO2 max tested. And so there was a gym in Columbia. The people that ran it didn't like for it to be called a gym. It was more of a health and fitness center kind of thing. So I went and got VO2 max testing there. And the person that tested me was Tom LaFontaine. He has a PhD in exercise physiology. He's worked with really, truly world-class athletes. He's been one himself. He like came in first or second in like a world duathlon. He actually, I believe made the Olympic team or just shy of making the Olympic team and weightlifting, the kind of weightlifting where you throw the bar over your head, clean and jerk, that kind of stuff. So he himself was like this sort of biphasic athlete also. And he had a very energetic personality and he's like, you need to join the gym, come join the gym. You need to lift more weights. It'll help you running. It'll do all that. Long story short, eventually We worked together for quite some time and he and his wife at the time and I and one other woman at the gym, we got this idea to make older women on weights a little, um, I don't know if you'd call it a club. It's not like you have to qualify to be in it, but we started getting really involved with recruiting a really big team of people. I mean, it was probably up to 40 or 50 at the time, just from Columbia of women between 40 and 70 plus years of age that became powerlifters and were competing in powerlifting. And so, I mean, I had gotten into a few meets just because Tom wanted me to do a few because unbeknownst to me, I had probably my biggest athletic gift is bench press. Like I just have a lot of aptitude for that. And he recognized that. And so he encouraged me to be in some meets and his wife and a friend were sitting in the crowd in one of our meets and they're like, we can break those records. And so from that, the older women on weights thing was created. So we have this huge team of women that are competitive powerlifters all the way up to 70 plus in age. There are a lot of different powerlifting federations. We're pretty small on the scale of different federations of powerlifting, and they all have their own records. We are, I can say without a doubt, the strictest federation on drug control. We actually have drug-free in our name. And that was very important to me because this was supposed to be promoting a healthy lifestyle, weightlifting as part of a healthy lifestyle so that women as they aged, you know, could remain independent and not look like the 70 year olds that a lot of 70 year olds look like. Right. So it was really important to me to be in a very strictly drug controlled federation. So that's predominantly where I lifted, although I lifted in a few others. So that's the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Federation. It's an all-volunteer federation. I'm actually the drug control officer for the federation. So I know that we strictly control drug use, even a hint of anabolic steroids and you're banned for life. So 
with that being said, there were a lot of open, certainly American records in my age group. So the way that records work is there's an open category, which is the youngsters. That's like anybody, but mostly that's where the 20 to 39 year olds fit. And that's usually the most competitive age group. And then every five years after that, and it's based on your body weight to weight lifted. So to win your age group doesn't necessarily mean you lifted more than the person that weighed twice as much as you. It just means that based on the ratio of what you weighed to what you lifted, you did the best. And so I qualified in the United States to go to like my first world meet, which actually was in the United States. It was a world championship, but it was in the United States. But I qualified and I was super excited and that meet was okay. I didn't set any records at that meet, but from there on, I just kept lifting and eventually went to, let's see, I've been to world meets in Belgium, France, Wales, and England. And I almost always win my agent in the bench press. I used to almost always win my agent weight division in the deadlift. But in the bench press, now at a world level, I didn't beat the people in the open category. But in the United States, I almost always won even in the open when I was in my 40s. And I had my very best meet in bench press when I was 48, I think. The highest I ever lifted was... 76.5 kilos. And that was a body weight of maybe about 51, 52 kilos. Do you think that the interest in competing also is something that's common among physicians? Do you think that that's a personality trait that's common among physicians? I think it probably is. Certainly not all in athletics, but sure, most of us don't get here by being type B personalities, right? Yeah, most of us don't. Most of us are pretty driven individuals. And so maybe you can help me answer this question. So maybe that is my physician response, my competitive, just inherent competitive nature. And it's my way to get away from medicine is my competitive thing for a while and like compete in another arena. And so maybe that's the way I undo work, right? I don't know. That's That's an interesting question. That's a great observation that it is a way to get away from medicine and compete in a different, a completely unrelated area in your life. Right, right, right. And make such a difference with the community that you've formed. Yeah. Oh, we've actually written a couple of papers in an exercise science journal about the improvement we saw in uh, women's bone density through this team. You know, instead of getting together and playing cards, we get together and we lift heavy weights. It's just been a great community to be in. Curious to hear, first of all, whether you have put together any kind of information that people could use to replicate what you've done and also what the results are. Right. So the first thing I want to say is I am not like a fitness trainer. That's not my job. And people actually, because I do do so many things, they like, hey, can you write me a plan for, there are people that are experts at that. And that's my friend who got me started in this. And so this paper we put together, he was really the driver that wrote most of it. I was mostly the data collector. He goes through the activities that we did and he puts, you know, the changes in bone mineral density that we've seen. And he also put in some of the data about the changes in strength and just the overall 
community, I actually wrote the part on community. So we did do a community part and how that improves. That's very important as you age too, you know, having a community, mm-hmm. especially one that's doing things that are healthy for you. So my point in telling you that I'm not a trainer is I don't want to say exactly the stuff that we did. Like, I don't want to give somebody a training program because I'm not certified to do that. So anyway, it's so cool because, you know, you win if your bone mineral density stays the same after you get to be 50, you're winning. Right. And improving it is thought to like, you're not going to do it. And we actually had women in their sixties improving their bone mineral density. So whole nother topic, but super cool. Yeah, we're going to revisit that for sure. That's yeah. really interesting. It and is. There's a big need, a huge need for it, of course. So that's phenomenal. Then you have taken this work outside of work or yeah. you've taken this hobby to phenomenal levels on a personal basis and on a community basis. So it's a tremendous, tremendous example. And I have to say, I'm not the person that made it all happened. It was really all of us just coming together. Cause like I said, this isn't like a team that you try out for. You just come and hang out. You don't pay dues. It's just a group of women that identify with each other with a common goal. So we grew together, I guess is my point. More of a team concept. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you for telling me about that. And then if I can push it one more step, has being able to focus in that way outside of work influenced you in terms of when you hear about so much burnout and when you're talking with residents and medical students, do you advise them in any way about that? And do you find that personally that that has helped to protect you? Oh, I definitely do. That's how I de-stress. I just remember some people would think running 20 miles was punishment. And for me, it was, this is like a long period of time where my pager's not going off and nobody can ask me to do anything. Like, you know, it definitely is a way to de-stress. And yes, I do tell my students when they start getting all crazy about exams, and especially right now, it's step exam time, right? But like when they would come in Monday morning, sometimes I would say, did you exercise this weekend? Because you should do that a little bit. You know, it's good. You need to study a lot, but you also, it's good to get out and do some other things. In fact, a couple of years ago, one of my PBL groups, my problem-based learning groups, (laughs) I had this one group in particular that was super funny and fun, but they decided that I needed to be the associate dean of work-life balance (laughs) because I was always telling them that they can't be one-dimensional because they're going to get burnt out. It's not good for their health. And just because I encouraged them to do that, mostly, I mean, I guess that's the answer. And Somehow, every year, somebody finds an article or two with my name in it about the stuff I've done, and then it gets passed around the class, and then I start getting lots of comments about it, and so that was part of it, too. Like, one of my evaluations from last block says, what are this facilitator's strengths? And one of the comments was, well, I think her muscles are a strength because she's a world champion weightlifter, (laughs) so... I don't even say anything about it. And somehow that stuff just gets around. And so that all came into the mix of being the work-life balance associate dean too. So yeah, you're a great example. And in addition to being an advocate for them. So I'm sure having an advocate like that makes a difference. Right. Just one more thing on that. I'm still very involved in our resident recruitment committee. So I interview a lot of residents 
candidates for our department. And I always ask them the questions that nobody else asks. I'm like, so what do you do outside of work? I usually say, don't tell me that you read Robbins because I don't want to hear that you just read Robbins. Like that can't be the only thing that <laughs> the you The perfect do. answer to the pathology program. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> There's only one wrong answer, which is I read Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> That's not wrong, but it has to be accompanied by, and I do there this. You go. I run and I listen to the audio version of Robbins. Robbins. <laughs> That's acceptable. And then I have to say, it's not a trick question because you're going to spend four years of your life here and you have to be happy outside of the walls of the hospital. So not only do we have to like you, but you have to like us and you have to like the community that you live in and you have to have the things that you de-stress with, you know, so maybe I've run a few candidates off. I don't know, but I always tell them that. So, so you made the choice to go into full-time teaching medical students. Yeah. In order to have a schedule that works for you, partially because of all of your competitions and then your personal life, or it, how did you make that decision? I was doing all of the athletic stuff actually while I was still the director of surgical pathology. So I was full time practicing then. In 2014, I agreed to start taking over the pathology portion of our integrated curriculum that we have at the University of Missouri. And I cut back my clinical time when I did that. And then in 2018, I went to just doing the teaching part. So basically, I retired from clinical work in 2018. Largely, I did that because of my husband's health, which is pretty bad. He has more trouble doing things around the house now, and he requires a lot of help. So I just needed a more flexible schedule where, you know, I wouldn't get paged out when he needed something, you know, and I could take hours off if I needed to. So it was largely because of that, but also that had always been my retirement plan. I always wanted to take over the course at the end of my career. I just did it a little sooner than I planned. How have you found that transition to be? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's great. I loved what I did. You know, I think we all find practicing medicine and helping people to be rewarding. So it's not that I didn't like what I was doing. It was just getting harder to do life while doing that mm -hmm. at the same time. And everybody thought I was pretty young when I made that transition because I'm just now 50. So I made that transition with, uh, younger than 50. I made that transition, which is pretty early. And everybody said, you know, you're going to regret it. Not a day. I haven't regretted it a day. I took a 40% pay cut and it was the best decision ever. I love what I do with the students. I actually didn't think I would like it as much. I knew I would like it. It was always a retirement plan and I knew that I would like it, but I didn't anticipate really like excelling at that part. I feel like this is what I have been best at in my career. Not to say that I wasn't a good surgical pathologist, but I was, I think, and I forgot to mention, I predominantly did gastrointestinal pathology at the end of my career. And of course, always taught residents because I was always working, you know, clinically, I was always teaching, but I really feel like the transition to student teaching is like where I fit best. Of course, I couldn't be a pathology teacher if I hadn't gone through and been a pathologist for several years. So I'm not saying I wouldn't have done that because that wouldn't have been possible. 
But I don't know. I really feel like this is where I fit the most in my whole career. How accessible is a teaching career for someone who's listening who might be thinking, well, if the schedule is more flexible, perhaps that is a path for me. What would you say in terms of accessibility? You mentioned one thing, which is that you had a career first as a clinical pathologist and that that is an important part of it. So I'm just curious for someone who's early in their career listening, what you might advise if they're interested in teaching. So I I feel like to be a good teacher, like to take over the whole course, to really do it well, you really do need to have some significant experience practicing. I think you need that as a foundation, just to be confident that you know what you're saying is true if you're the whole face of the department. So I wouldn't recommend doing that first right out of the gate. I mean, you could. You could, but I just feel like having clinical experience adds a lot to what you can do as an instructor. But what you usually can do at any academic hospital is you can give a lecture for the pathology department. You know, you can get involved with single lectures and things like that. And that's fantastic because you learn the most when you do that yourself. So I think any academic medical center is always looking for one of their pathologists to give a lecture here or there. So I would say do that. See if you like it. And if you really, really, really like it, you might make that transition. But I would make sure I had a lot of experience first. That makes sense. Absolutely. And so with everything that you've done, you're a runner, you're a swimmer, you're a weightlifting champion. I'm a really bad swimmer. Well, you're modest as well, (laughs) I'm sure. So you're the drug control officer for the American Drug Free Powerlifting Federation. You're on the board of directors there. You're an international referee for the organization, and you're a physician and a professor. So all that being said, what would you say are the best secrets that you've figured out to manage all of those things, as well as your personal life and the needs of your husband and your family. As we communicated previously, I don't have kids. I think that it would be really hard to do. I'm not saying you can't do that with kids. I'm just saying I had more time than I think people that have children. So I didn't have that extra piece in my life that a lot of people have. So there was more time for that. Some might consider that to be one hack. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't know that anything I've done has taken more time than raising a child. And I think it's more flexible than raising a child. If you're raising a kid, you kind of have to always be there. Finding time for exercise is flexible. You can always do that. I did a lot of waking up at 3.30, 4.30 in the morning to work out. I had to manage my long runs around my call schedule and do some creative things that way. So ran in the mornings, lifted at night. Great ideas. Wow. And it worked out well. So yeah. And if you had to do it all over again, would you do anything differently? I think when I finished residency, it was just at a pivot point where basically everybody did a fellowship in something. Prior to that, it was a fairly general category, and sometimes people did fellowships and sometimes they didn't. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of on that fence. Now, without me too, 
Yeah, now without question, everybody does one and often two fellowships. You know, I kind of wish that I had gone and done a subspecialty area. It just gives you more confidence when you just start practicing. Even if you do a subspecialty fellowship like GI, it still gives you more confidence when you come back to do general surgical pathology to have had that experience. That's a confidence builder too, I think. So I think I would have explored a little bit more. Um, that's the one thing I would have done differently. Yeah, good advice. I, I worked as a physician recruiter prior to medical school and learned a little bit about the whole job market. And I would have never known to do that otherwise, but I think that's great advice. Even if you just use it only as a tool to learn about the market so that you know where you stand in your own negotiations and... Yeah, um, and what you're worth, right? Right. And even if that's not your first priority, it's still valuable information to know because you don't want to be reckless or undervalued right? in terms of making decisions. You want to be sure you're at least being treated fairly. Right. Great point in terms of how you might do something differently. So it's been wonderful talking with you. I definitely hope that your husband will be doing well and send our best. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've had a fun time chatting. We want to remind you that if you do want coaching support right now, all you have to do is go to docworking.com and you can check out our coaching opportunities for you to get a certified coach who is experienced in working with physicians. Also, if you're not on our newsletter yet, you got to get over to docworking.com today and sign up. That's how you find out about all kinds of offers and resources that we have available to you. So until next time, thanks so much for being with us here on Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are docworking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.